If you'll open your Bibles tonight to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, as we prepare ourselves to celebrate the Lord's Supper, I want to talk with you about betrayal, desertion, pride, and the death of Jesus. And the way I'd like to do it tonight is I'd like to just give an interpretive reading through this passage, commenting along the way and preparing us to to partake in the Lord's Supper. I want you to notice with me in the opening two verses that the religious leaders are plotting in conspiracy to put Jesus to death. Look at me in verses 1 and 2. Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death. For they were afraid of the people. You know, it's quite interesting that during the most holy and most significant season of the Jewish year, those days culminating on a Thursday night when they celebrated the Passover, the religious leaders, the religious establishment was plotting to murder Jesus. And they find a willing accomplice in Judas Iscariot. Notice with me in verse 3 through 6 how Satan doesn't leave anything to chance, but how Judas Iscariot becomes Satan's tool in the betrayal of Jesus. Verse 3, and Satan entered into Judas, who was also called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. So he's one of the inner circle. He's one of Jesus' closest companions. He's one of Jesus' disciples. He's one of those that was picked out of the multitude of people to spend the most intimate and quality time with Jesus. And notice that Satan entered into him. Only twice in the four Gospels does it specifically say that Satan entered Judas here. And then again in John chapter 13. Now, this prompts one to think all the way back to the temptation narrative. And if we had time, we'd go back to the temptation narrative in Luke chapter 4. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 13, after Jesus had defeated Satan in the wilderness, Luke notes that Satan would wait until an opportune time to strike again. And now that opportune time has come. One of Jesus' closest companions has opened up his heart to satanic involvement. We know that the probable way that that Satan was able to enter him was because he was a thief. He was a treasurer. John 13 says he used to help himself to the funds in the treasury. So a time of unrepentant sin opens a person up to satanic involvement, and so Satan himself enters in. He's not going to leave anything to chance. This is his opportune moment. Because from chapter 4 until now, he's been backpedaling. At every turn, Jesus has been casting out demons and setting people free. And now he's found an opening, and it's in one of Jesus' closest friends. It's striking that he says, belonging to the number of the twelve, which heightens the level of duplicity and the act of betrayal. It wasn't just some passerby. It wasn't just someone on the, on the fringes. It was one of his closest companions, his closest friends. 
Verse 4, and he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he considered and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him. Let me read that again. Uh, So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. And we know from Matthew's gospel, he did it for 30 pieces of silver. He, He did it for the price of a common slave. Uh, That's why I think that Jesus warns us in in Luke chapter 12, beware, be on guard against every form of greed. You know, this morning, Jason talked with us about what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, Judas gave his soul in exchange for 30 pieces of silver. Not an inconsequential amount of money, but not a very significant amount of money. And when you consider 30 pieces of silver for an eternity in hell, he made a pretty crucial mistake. And so in these opening verses, you have the religious leaders working with one of Jesus' closest companions who is indwelt by Satan, conniving and scheming and looking for an opportunity to betray him. In verses 7 through 13, Jesus sends Peter and John into the city on Thursday morning, the first week of April, A.D. 30, to begin to make preparation for the Passover meal. Only Luke mentions that it's Peter and John, but Peter and John, they were probably his, his closest companions, even out of the 12. They were definitely a part of the inner circle. The inner circle was, consisted of Peter, James, and John. So Peter and John are sent into the city. Follow along as I read. Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Now you remember Passover commemorated Israel's exodus from Egypt. And so as they celebrated the Passover, they would recount and retell how God brought the Egyptians to their knees through all of these plagues that he brought upon the people of Egypt and how God brought them out of Egypt and they they literally left the Egyptians bankrupt. And so this this was the monumental redemptive act in their history. And so on Thursday morning... Jesus sends Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. They said to him, where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room, prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. See, Jesus wasn't leaving anything to chance. He had already made arrangements with with someone in the city to secure a room for them. Because the, the city of Jerusalem would probably have had within the city walls somewhere in 20 to 25,000 people. You go outside the city to the, to the kind of the suburbs surrounding the city, 35, 45,000 people. But during the Passover season, 
it would explode to somewhere between 200 and 250,000 people, Jewish people coming from literally all over the world, descending on the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so it was very difficult to find a room that would be available for you to celebrate the Passover with family and friends. So the, so the, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders, they extended the city limits out several miles to encompass the, the Mount of Olives and, and, the, and the surrounding areas so that people would have places where they could celebrate the Passover. So Jesus secures a room with a friend. Now, we see something of his omniscience because it's one thing to secure a room ahead of time. It's another thing to know that when your disciples enter the city, a city that's going to be bustling with people, going to be filled with life and expectation and and excitement about the evening events, for them to run into the man carrying a pitcher of water that's going to lead them to just the right place. And that's exactly what happens. And so we see something of Jesus planning by securing the room, and we see something of his omniscience by knowing that they're going to run into a man at a certain place, and that man is going to be the man that owns the home where they're going to be eating the Passover, and he, and he leads them there. Now, when we come to verse 14 through verse 20, we come to one of the monumental moments in the life of Jesus. He's been thinking about this night for literally months, if not years. And he's been contemplating how he is going to explain to the disciples how what they were celebrating as a Passover is going to be a window that looks into what's going to take place on the cross. That's exactly what the Lord's Supper is. It's a window. It's the curtains being pulled back and us being able to look through that window into the meaning of the cross. That Jesus is going to die voluntarily and he's going to die vicariously. He's going to die in our place voluntarily and vicariously. That means he willingly is going to lay down his life and he's going to do it for me and he's going to do it for you. He's going to do it in your place and he's going to do it in my place. He's going, to trans- he's going to transfer the entire concept into something that they're not really ready to grasp, and they probably don't grasp it. But after the resurrection, they're going to look back on that night, and they're going to say, that was the night of all nights. That was the night where the Lord explained to us ever so clearly what was going to happen on Friday morning, but we weren't spiritually sharp enough to get it. So look with me beginning in verse 14. When the hour had come, you know, that's very poetic. When the clock struck 12, so to speak. Uh, we're familiar with that kind of poetry and that kind of, that kind of literature. And that's what, that's what Luke is saying. When the hour had come, when the spiritual clock was striking midnight, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. So he's in that, in that small, crowded upper room with the men that loved him more than anybody else in all of the world save his own mother. 
and men that he probably loved uh, uh, more than he loved anyone in all the world. And, and they would have been rough and tumble kinds of guys. They would have been smelly and stinky. The upper room would have, would have reeked with kind of, a, with kind of a horrific odor. But there they are ready to celebrate this, this very special meal that they would only partake of once a year. And he says, I earnestly desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So you see two things. One is you see I've been waiting for this moment. I've earnestly longed and anticipated and expected this moment. But I'm going to enjoy it, but next comes suffering. So in the forefront of his mind, it's like there's a battle going on. I've longed for this very hour but my suffering is just hours away. And they probably couldn't grasp what he meant when he said, before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So he's never going to celebrate it like he is celebrating it in that moment until the messianic banquet, until, until, we, until we eat it all together as one family of God with the people of God of all time at the Messianic banquet. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. Now, there were four cups of wine in the Jewish Passover. Each cup of wine commemorated a promise from Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. If you'll look at Exodus 6, 6 and 7 later, you'll notice that there's four statements. I will, I will, I will, I will. In Exodus 6, 6 and 7. And so there was one cup of wine drunk for each of those statements at various times in in the celebration of the Passover. Now Matthew and Mark only describe one cup of wine. Luke is going to describe two of the four cups of wine. And so he says in verse 18... For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of, until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So now he's transitioning the Lord's Supper, I'm sorry, the Passover meal into the Lord's Supper. And as he breaks that bread, and we're reminded of the fact that he is the bread of life. As he breaks that bread, he says, this bread represents my body. It's going to be broken for you. Take a piece, eat it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten. Now remember, he's already had one cup mentioned before the bread, but But this is the cup of redemption. This is the third cup. This is the third promise in Exodus 6, 6 and 7 where he says, I will redeem you. This is the cup of redemption. And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. 
And their minds would have hearkened back to Jeremiah chapter 31, 31 through 34, where Jeremiah promises that we're going to be given a a new heart and and the law is going to be written and inscribed on our hearts. And they're going to take from us a heart of stone and we're going to be given a heart of flesh. And the sealing of this covenant is his blood. Now, you remember in the Passover, they they were to kill a lamb... And then they were to take the blood of the lamb and smear it over the doorpost. And as the death angel would pass through Egypt, he would see the blood on the doorpost of the Egyptian or of the Jewish people, and he would pass them by because he knew that they were living in obedience to God. And so he says, This this cup, it represents my blood. And notice he says, which is poured out for you. Verse 19, this is my body which is broken for you. That's what it means that its death is vicarious. It's kind of a big word that, that, that just means he did it for you and he did it for me. He did it in our place. And he did it voluntarily. But in the very midst of the, of the, of the celebration, he says, but behold, the hand of the one betraying me is... With mine on the table. For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. God had predestined this. God had ordained it. This was God's plan from the very beginning of time. That God would redeem for himself a people through the death of his son. He's not caught off guard. He, God, God isn't backpedaling thinking the Jewish leaders are conspiring on the one hand. Judas is betraying him on the other hand. No, everything is working according to God's plan. So well, how, how could this be God's ordained plan? Well, turn with me over to the book of Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4... In Acts chapter 4, Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts as well as the, as the third gospel, look with me in chapter 4 in verse 27. Chapter 4, verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. God predestined that his own son die in our place, that we would not have to bear his eternal wrath, but his son on the cross would bear hell in our place. He would experience hell in our place as he hung on that cross. So it says back in Chapter 22, verse 22. For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by, by, by whom he is betrayed. Notice he says in verse 21, his hand is at the table. He's a friend, he's a colleague, he's a, he's a co-worker, he's a companion. He, he, he's like a brother to me. He, he's someone that I eat with and someone that I camp with and someone that I travel with and someone that, I, that I've preached with and it's going to be one of, one of my own. But I'm not caught off guard. God isn't caught off guard either. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them might be 
who, who was going to, to do this thing. Nobody turned immediately to Judas and said, you know, it's Judas. That scoundrel, look at, look at the beady eyes, that, that, that low-down thief. Now, they didn't have any idea that it was Judas. And then while Jesus is telling them that he's going to suffer and die, and he is being betrayed, I want you to notice that in verse 24, the disciples, they have ADD. I mean, they, they can't keep their attention on anything, it doesn't seem like. No sooner does he say, I'm going to die, than they're arguing over which one of them is the most important, which one of them is the greatest, which one of them deserves the most accolades. You wonder, what is it with these nincompoops? What is it with these dim-witted dweebs? What is it with them? Well, you know what? We do the very same thing, don't we? When we don't get the recognition, when we, don't get, uh, when we don't get the publicity, when we don't get the pat on the back, when we don't get the affirmation that we think that we deserve, we behave in a way very much like them, although we know better. Because we live on this side of the cross, they lived on that side of the cross. They're, they're working through it all right now in just kind of a fog as everything is unfolding. We've seen it unfold and we still act like jerks so often when things don't go the way we want them to go. And so he says in verse 24, Luke does, and, and there arose also a dispute among them as to which of them was regarded to be greatest. And he said, the kings of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. Uh, they're superior to others. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest. And the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Well, obviously, it's the one who reclines at the table. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? Yeah, that's right. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. But I am among you as the one who serves. The good news is the Lord's Supper is for jerks like you and me. That like everything done our way, in our timing, and we like all of the accolades to be pointed back in our direction. So we celebrate the Lord's Supper tonight. We need to be reminded of a couple of things. There's not that much distance between us and the disciples. There's a lot of them in us. And when we're honest about it, we can see it. That doesn't disqualify us from the Lord's Lord's table because the Lord's table is for people like us. It's for jerks that recognize they're jerks and who are willing to say, Lord, I'm a jerk. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. Please forgive me. Please forgive me when I get offended that I don't get the 
recognition that I do. Please forgive me when things don't, don't happen the way that I want them to happen. Please forgive me when I, when I forget that what you've called me to do is to serve people, not to rule people. And so in just a moment, we're going to have a, have a very brief time of commitment. And it may be that, uh, that what you could do during that time is, as uh, I lead us in a, in a time of repentant prayer, that you would just confess to the Lord where you see yourself in the midst of all of uh, Luke 22. And, and maybe you would just say, Lord, forgive me. Please, please forgive me. Because the good news is the Lord uses this meal to make us more like himself. Because it's a means of grace, like Barry mentioned. It strengthens us. It helps us to overcome indwelling sin. It helps us to become more servant-like and less benefactor-like. You may be a guest with us tonight and you're wondering, Hey, uh, Pastor, uh, I'm just visiting... uh, Am I allowed to partake of the Lord's Supper tonight? Well, it all depends. If you are seeking to walk with the Savior, you're battling against indwelling sin, and it's two steps forward and one step back like most of us, and you're actively involved in an evangelical church, or you're seeking an uh, an evangelical church as a church home, maybe you've relocated or you're visiting and and trying to determine where the Lord wants you to be, and, and you follow the Lord in believer's baptism, then we would invite you tonight to, uh, to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. But you may be a member here at Ninth and O, and you're, and you're not walking with the Lord in good standing. That is, I don't mean that you're, that you're not stumbling and getting up. All of, us are doing, all of us are doing that except for the arrogant person that doesn't realize it. Uh, but you're fighting indwelling sin. You're, you're wanting to, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You're wanting more grace so that he can have more glory. Then we, we want you to partake of the Lord's Supper tonight. So I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Our worship pastor is going to come. And, and uh, in just a moment, I'll call our deacons down. So let's, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you tonight that uh, through this simple reading of the Bible, we're able to see... We're able to see so much about ourselves, and Lord, uh, it's, like, it's like you've done a little bit of heart surgery on us at, at different places and at different venues and at different avenues of this passage. We've had a little peek around the corner at, at ourselves, and we don't like what we see any more than you like it. And Father, we ask you to forgive us. You might name particular sin in your heart right now and father we pray that in these final moments in Jesus name that you would feed our soul with the bread of life in Jesus name we pray amen chairman of our deacons is going to come and assist me and we'll ask our deacons if they'll come forward at this time you know sometimes we We wonder when we've seen something about ourselves and we've confessed that to the Lord, how how does he look at me? Now, how how could he look at me? And when he looks at us, he looks at us through the lenses of his son. He looks at us through the person and work of Christ. 
It's as if he has on these glasses, and these glasses give him a visual presentation of us that is different than what we see. When we look at ourselves, we think, man, I really am kind of a jerk. I don't know how he could love me. Well, he loves me because his son died for me. He loves me because I'm clothed in the righteousness of his son. It's probably hard for us to fathom what it must mean to Almighty God to look down on redeemed sinners purchased through the death of his son, whom he's conforming into his son's image. It's hard for us to fathom how much he loves us. And so as you eat this little piece of, um, of wafer, I want, I want you to think about as you chew it up how much God truly does love you. Would you take and eat? Uh, last week one day I spoke sternly to my wife and it really hurt her. And uh, there's nothing uh, I hate worse in life than hurting my, hurting my wife. And as I reflected on it, I thought, well, you know, every day that happens between me and the Savior, there's never a day that passes by that I don't sin against the Savior. And there are religions like Catholicism where you better make sure that your sins are confessed when you die. Are you going to go to a some place in the netherworld called purgatory that we know doesn't exist. How is it that we could stumble so often in our Christian life and die with absolute certainty that we'll go to heaven? Because Jesus died in our place. We've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. We're clothed in a righteousness that's not our own. And that shouldn't make us less concerned about holy living. It should motivate us to be more holy than we are. And so as you drink this uh, juice, would you think about the fact that it's this juice that represents the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and you being cleansed and me being cleansed of all our sin. Would you stand?